0: Section 15 of Women, Children, Love, and Marriage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Abrenica, World Audiobook Podcast. Women, Children, Love, and Marriage by Catherine Gasquin Hartley. Section 15 of Section 2, Children. Difficulties and Mistakes in Sex Education To the theoretical teacher or parent eager to reform the world on paper, it may seem easy to introduce sex education into the nursery training of the home and into the curriculum of our schools. It appears a comparatively easy matter to tell the little child the truth about its own body, and as it grows older, to give carefully prepared lessons about plants and animals, which shall lead it slowly and beautifully into the way of knowledge. Textbooks have been written, pamphlets officially issued, schemes drawn up for home and school instruction, and rules laid down new finger posts to right conduct, whereby the younger generation may be enlightened and, as we hope, by this means, save from making the mistakes that we ourselves had made. I wish it were as simple as this, that sex instruction could be taken from books. Of late various attempts have been made to focus attention on this aspect of the question or on that. We have been told how this teaching should be given and with still greater assurance how it should not be given. This must be done and that must not be done. This said and that left unsaid. And groups of earnest-minded parents and teachers in almost every town, have met together to discuss and decide debatable points. Lecturers have been applied for, and their utterances have been listened to as a new gospel. Yet, I venture to think that, as in all other experimental and debatable questions, the very multitude of counsel and the earnestness that is expanded indicates the uncertainty of our knowledge and the doubtful value of many of our affirmations. I find a tendency amongst most grown-ups, and especially teachers and advanced parents, who ought to know better, to place too firm a reliance on their own power to educate the young insects. I myself have done this, like those drowning in deep water where they cannot swim. We have clutched at any plank of hope. You see so many of the old planks, religions, social barriers, chaperones, home restrictions, and so many more, on which our parents used to rely have failed us, been broken in our hands by the vigorous destroying grabs of the young generation, and therefore we have clutched with frantic fingers at this new fair looking life raft in pursuit of one aim to protect our children. But will it save them? I doubt if it will accept in a limited and very different way from what it is usually accepted. We cannot help the young very far or deeply by any of our teaching. Not only do they want their own experience, not ours, but it is right for them to have it. The urge of adolescence carries them away out of our detaining hands, and I think it may be well that at once we realise and acknowledge the very narrow limits of our power. Thus I have nothing new or very striking to bring to the solution of this difficult problem. I shall endeavour, however, to look at the matter broadly and practically and attempt to indicate in what direction, as it seems to me. Further progress may be made at the present stage of our very faulty knowledge. One of the most disturbing features that we have to recognize in relation to the child is the very early age at which sex manifests itself. It was formerly supposed that the sex life began at the age of puberty. Nothing is more untrue. Every child is born with instincts and desires, feelings of love, of hate, of jealousy, which furnish the motives of conduct, and are accompanied by physical manifestations of pleasure or discomfort which express themselves, often in a veiled way, as wishes and cravings that find relief in action, and must therefore be yoked either to some burden of utility or to some car of vanity. It should be noted, however… That the word sexual is somewhat ambiguous because i want to stretch it to include the very germs that afterwards blossoms into the adult sex life the little girl with her doll is maternal and the boy with a tin sword is showing the crudest manifestation of the male protective instinct the baby whenever it enjoys the satisfaction of releasing its infantile one's gurgles with delight Every nurse and every mother who tends her child herself knows this and recognizes as necessary task in the training of the child almost from the day of its birth, the weaning of it away from this egocentric concentration of its own body. We are always trying not to admit that we have to recognize in relation to sex the very early age at which it manifests itself. We do not believe this because we dislike to believe it. Our fear causes us to neglect in a quite wrong way the deeply affective results of the early childish emotions. To the uninstructed eye, early desires and feelings connected with sex are often so unlike their final form that they pass unrecognized. But the mother who has eyes to see and knowledge to understand knows that the child can hide no secret. When the lips speak not, the face is in twitching mouth and blinking eyes the hands in telling gestures, the biting nails, the sucking thumb, the shuffling feet, the toes that are play with and suck all this utter the truth, and betrayal escapes out of every nervous movement of hands and feet and face. We will not see and acknowledge the presence of these early emotions because we want to see the child an angel. We cannot surrender the picture of childhood as a period of delightful ignorance and innocence. The very reverse is the truth. The child has brought with it much from more primitive times, just in the same way as its body still shows traces of earlier developments in life. So its emotions, its instincts, its wishes and desires revert back, in many particulars, to lower stages of growth. Always the child has to fight its way upwards, and indeed, it has no easy task to find and keep the right path in its short journey of discovery to reach from the savagery of the babe to the level of a civilized social man or woman. If we do not help it, the way becomes doubtly hard and often the path is lost or, in other words, the savage triumphs. We are now in a better position to answer the question, so much debated as to the age at which the sex education of the child should begin. Instead of this being a matter that can be put off until the child is older, and the angel innocence has been solid by contact with an evil and ugly world, it becomes overwhelmingly important that no time whatever should be lost. Every effort must be made to educate from the very hour of birth these primitive instincts, which, though permissible in the savage and the little child, are wholly really wrong if allowed to remain active in the later adult years. Delay is fatal. Time lost now never can be regained. Mistakes made cannot be put right. A wrong directions may most easily be given by a courteous act. I cannot emphasize this too strongly or too often. The character, the life history, and the entire fate of every child is fixed in the nursery. The mistakes we have been making for so long is in regarding these instructions in sex as something we can impact to children or withhold from them, a subject we may teach or not teach. Enlightenment we may give to them or conceal from them. This view is entirely erroneous. In one sense, the whole matter really lies outside of our wills. Sex education cannot be omitted by any parent or any teacher from the training of any child, for it is given by not being given, just as surely as the other way about. There is no escape for anyone who has to do with a child. You will see what I mean. It is not the good and wise lessons you may give of nicely arranged explanations with flower illustrations or stories of the mating of birds and animals. Still less is it warnings, or goody-goody talks about purity, nor is it any kind of formal or even conscious instruction that will have the true molding influence of the character and emotional state of the child. But what most influences him, or in other words, teaches him and helps or hinders him, is the peculiarly affective state, I mean the emotional attitude which usually is totally unknown to the parents and educators, and is also quite incomprehensible to the child himself. It is all the things that the grown-ups are trying hardest to hide from the children and perhaps also covering away from themselves that are the real directing forces in their character the concealed enmity or even small disharmonies between the parents, the repressed tempers, the strangled temptations, the secret longing of one or other parent, the miseries that are hidden, all these inevitably arouse a response in the children, which acting continuously and unconsciously bring them to a state corresponding with that of the parents. Their shame and want of joy in sex will become the children's shame and want of joy. Their unhappiness in love Will be the children's unhappiness. Their most hidden wishes will escape to create disharmonies in these young and tender souls. The parents, and especially the mother, impress deeply into the child's being the seal of their characters. And the more sensitive and moldable the child, the deeper is the impression. Take, for instance, the only or favorite child who suffers under an anxious excess of tenderness so that his love is so fixed on the mother, that not only does he become restless with too heavy a burden of emotional stress and often really ill, but in later life he has the greatest difficulty in establishing his own character, freeing himself from the mother's influence or finding his own love mate. Again, in the exact opposite position, there is the neglected and unwanted child who, missing his rightful possession of love, suffers from a sense of inferiority which dark and hindering shadow dogs his footsteps through life, finding a positive expression in shyness and incapacity for action for a negative expression in bombastic and disagreeable self-assertion. So I might continue with countless examples. Adult traits can in almost all cases be traced back to the child's early experiences in connection with its parents and its home. The child is like a flower and the banks where it grows are its world's its home, and the friends with whom it comes in contact. The sky above is the surrounding love of which it is dependent, and to which it looks up as the flower of the sun for gladness and for life. What I mean is this, the child has desires and impulses of its own, but it reflects the changing needs and atmosphere of the small world in which it lives, and is terribly dependent on that world. It is forming and selecting a character. It very largely tries what the effect is of different kinds of conduct, different characters. The child does not itself know what it is or would wish to be. Whenever there is, as often there must be, a mistake made, a wrong step taken, a conflict inevitably occurs, and must find some quick response in childish naughtiness. Otherwise, dullness and unhappiness will arise, and this, if continued, will tend to bring the dangerous condition of the repressed and introverted child. We have established now that the love life of the child starts at a very early age. It begins in the home, and I want to investigate this love life. To do this, we must examine with some care the child's emotional relationship to the members of his family. These relationships are not amicable Or peaceful as at first sight would appear. At a very early age, jealousy as well as love steers in the baby's soul. This may surprise you, but I would ask you for a moment to consider the baby's position. The child is in a small, shut up world with its mother. At first, she occupies all its life. She is the earliest love object and of supreme importance in the infantile constellation. Everything starts from her. She is the source of nutrition, and as such the first object towards which the hunger-wish is directed. She is also the supplier of warmth, of comfort, of rest, the personification of shelter and happiness, the starting point of all those interests of the child which lie outside its own body, who can wonder at the child's possessive feelings in relation to its mother. But we have seen already, in an earlier essay, how the superfluous father comes as an intruder into this mother-child circle. And it is in this way jealousy begins to awaken. At a very early age, and sometimes is almost unbelievably active in the baby soul. For these feelings will increase if the baby is a boy, and the love of the mother may grow to great intensity. Which coupled with the jealousy of the father may work great evil, especially if the mother is unwise to tenderly solicitous, to possessive in her love, herself neurotic In the case of the girl, the position is different. The baby fixation upon the mother is as a rule. Relieved with growth, as a part of the love fund is transferred to the father. Sometimes this does not happen, especially when the jealousy of the little girl is roused, usually by a brother or sister more loved by the mother than herself. Then, indeed, a fixation happens either in a too passionate tenderness for the mother, which persisting act as an insurmountable hindrance in the later life in preventing the normal outgoing of love to a member of the opposite sex. I know of one such case, and it may make my meaning plainer if I tell it to you. A little girl was born in a home where there was already a brother, passionately loved by a too good mother. The little girl soon felt for no one feels so quickly as a little child, that the brother had a place of greater importance than herself. She did not hate outwardly this brother. Had she done this, all might have been well, as she would have gained relief in expression. She developed the useful device of the unhappily jealous child, and took to fantasy-making pretending that she had another mother, or at other times that she was doing some wonderful deed, being very clever, very good, very beautiful, so as to gain the love and admiration of her mother. This was the inner life of make-believe. The outer life was one of the continuous nervous struggle, which culminated in St. Vito's dance. What is, however, most interesting is the later love life, and the starting way it reflects this early emotional conflict. This child is now a woman nearing thirty. Very charming, very nice-looking. But she is utterly unable to settle on her love mate. Engagement has followed engagement. In each case, the lover has been discarded for no adequate reason. In all other connections of life, capable and good, she behaves in her love affairs with a capricious unkindness very difficult to pardon if one did not understand. It may be worthwhile to refer to another case known to me. Two daughters with a mother and father between whom there was trouble, the father having an affection for another woman. Though the trouble was most carefully hidden from the little girls, it formed a decisive factor in their lives. It is not clear to me whether the love object was the father, though I think that this was so. It was, however, the mother who was, as indeed usually she is, the central figure in this nursery drama. Both children suffered jealousy, probably of the lady-loved by the father, transferred to the mother. The effect was directly opposite on each daughter. The elder, stronger and more forceful character girl developed a passionate rebellion against the mother, a specially sweet and long-suffering woman, of so violent and unreasonable character that she could not live at home, while the other child was the absolute type of the perfect daughter, self-sacrificing and passionately loving. But why this case is interesting is that it was the good child who suffered while the bad child triumphed. The rebellious daughter was able to establish her own adult life, to work successfully and to marry happily. The dutiful daughter lost her own power to live and to love, and was not liberated even by the death of the mother. I would ask you to note this very specially as it is exceedingly important. A too great devotion and anxious excess of tenderness on the part of anyone but especially on the part of a child to a parent, covers always and even under the most improbable circumstances, as when it appears that there is the closest sympathy and harmony of will, an intense hostile tendency, and because vice will not be choked by virtue, this oversubmissive state is much more dangerous and likely to destroy the springs of life than open hostility. We have much less need to be afraid of the future for the rebellious even the unkind and ungrateful child, than for the good and devoted child who apparently knows no will but ours and lives outward perfect submission. Every parent who is wise will recognize such a state as one of the greatest danger, and at any cost to herself will separate herself from the child. Mind, I do not mean send the child away. That plan may indeed be tried, but often especially with sensitive children. The absence will, but forge the fetters firmer. Something like this happens whenever a child who goes to school is continuously homesick and becomes ill, not necessarily with a specified illness, but grows nervous, fails in work, and in play. Such a mother has before her, perhaps the hardest task in parenthood. She has to take the child home and dissipate and send from herself the overtender love, accepting in its place the rebellious hatred that it covers that she failed in this task of sacrifice made necessary remember by some early mistake in the management of the child she is simply using up for herself the energy of love which her child ought to have to use for its own life i trust these two cases will have made plainer to you the kind of difficult problems that have to be met by parents i do not think there is any family where they are not present there are many variations and the strength of the difficulty as well as the permanent nature of the harm suffered by the child, depends almost wholly on the wisdom and the knowledge of the mother, and even more, on the extent to which she has been able to understand her concealed wishes and her own love history from her childhood's days and free herself from its heritage. You will see. I think without my waiting to point out how complex the position is and how hard is the task of the mother to guide the early emotional life of her children. It is obvious how easily mistakes may be made. Hardly less difficult is the position of the father, who is at once the intruder in the family and the supporter of it. To the child in the ordinary home, he is the final authority. He occupies the position of a god or a ruler. He is feared and rebelled against. Also he is reverence. Any omission of these qualities, and especially the last, is fatal to the child without his father reverence, and in absence of his needed authority, there arises an arrogant disposition that controls all the later character. As has been recognized by all modern psychologists, there is much of the childish attitude of the boy to his father in the later relations, of the follower to his ruler, of the worshiper to his god, of the schoolboy to his schoolmaster. End of chapter 15. Recording by Maria Abrenica. World Audiobook Podcasts.